Welcome to Layer Zero. Layer Zero is a podcast of unscripted conversations with the people that make up the Ethereum community. Crypto is built by code, but is composed by people. And each individual member of the crypto community has their own story to tell. Cypherpunks understood that the code they write impacts the people that use it. And Layer Zero focuses on the people behind the code because Ethereum is people all the way down and it always has been. Today on Layer Zero, I'm talking with Tarun Chitra, who's generally known as one of those giga brain math wizards on crypto Twitter and around. And Tarun is so good at like math, so fluent in math that he actually comes out the other side and he's actually really creative about it. So he's like a creative math geek, I'd say. And you can definitely see that in like his style of his clothes and apparel. But this episode turned out to be less about the creative side of math and the beauty of math. We do touch on that at the end, but more about the relationship between regulation and finance. And we talk about how smart contracts are more of an innovation in the legal space more than they are in the financial space. And we unpack the fact that finance is really just the combination of money and law. Money and contracts is how you create finance. And we talk about how United States regulation is perhaps holding back the truer manifestation of this world of finance, not just inside of crypto, but outside of crypto and how this incumbent regulation actually slows us down in the way that states can engage with each other. And what if we had interstate law agreements that were based on smart contract rather than a federal system, which was very slow. So some very hypothetical zoomed out applications of what it means to have smart contract law is code law. So let's go ahead and get right into this conversation with Tarun right after we talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Slingshot is a decentralized trading platform that combines the performance and ease of a centralized exchange with the openness and transparency of DeFi, creating the world's most powerful trading platform. Slingshot aggregates liquidity from all of DeFi in order to find the best price on thousands of crypto assets. Every token on Slingshot comes with a price chart and trade logs to give you insights into the market's activity in real time. Slingshot is available on Polygon, Arbitrum, and Optimism, saving you from the high gas fees and low transaction speeds of the Ethereum L1. There are no fees to trade on Slingshot, and any positive slippage is given to the users. Trading on Slingshot is a social experience. Chat with others online about trading, markets, and tokens via the platform's built-in global chat box featuring Web3 sign-in. You can even set your chat avatar to your favorite NFT, or soon a Slingshot 2099 NFT avatar. Once you bridge your assets to Polygon, Arbitrum, or Optimism, go to app.slingshot.finance to trade and use the chat box to share your trades with others and find other tokens to ape into. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that's going to completely change how we use DeFi and NFTs. Over 250 projects have already deployed on Arbitrum, and Arbitrum's DeFi and NFT ecosystems are growing rapidly. Arbitrum increases Ethereum speed by orders of magnitude for a fraction of the cost of the average gas fee. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of decentralization and security. If you're a developer who wants low gas fees and instant transactions for your users, as well as EVM compatibility when developing, visit develop developer.offchainlabs.com to get started building your application on Arbitrum. If you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps or NFT projects building on Arbitrum. Many of your favorite apps are already live, with many more coming over soon. You can find these apps at portal.arbitrum.one, and you can bridge your assets over to Arbitrum using bridge.arbitrum.io in order to experience DeFi and NFTs the way it was always meant to be. Fast, cheap, and friction-free. The Brave browser is the user-first browser for the Web3 internet with built-in privacy and ad blocking to keep you in charge of your digital footprint. And inside the Brave browser, you'll find the Brave Wallet, the first secure crypto wallet built natively inside of a Web3 crypto browser. What's Web3? Web3 is freedom from big tech and Wall Street. 
more control, and better privacy. But there's a weak point in Web3, your crypto wallet. The Brave Wallet is different. Brave Wallet is built natively inside the Brave browser, no extension required, which gives the Brave Wallet an extra level of security versus other wallets. With the Brave Wallet, you can buy, store, send, and swap your crypto assets, and you can even manage your NFTs and connect to other wallets and DeFi apps, all from the security of the best privacy browser on the market. Whether you're new to crypto or a seasoned pro, it's time to ditch those risky extensions. It's time to switch to the Brave Wallet. Download Brave at brave.com bankless and click the wallet icon to get started. Hey, Trin, how's it going? Great. How about you? Oh, absolutely fantastic. Tarun, I think you have a very interesting position in the crypto industry. And I think it's one that what I want to parse apart is, are you more analytical and math focused or are you more creative and art focused? And I actually don't know the answer to this question. And so do you? I don't think I know the answer to this question, but I will say... It's like a coin flip every day. Mm -hmm. I prefer it having some like randomness and and uh, kind of things changing. Mm -hmm. um, I also think there's kind of like a a sense in which it, there's like phases and seasons of for things for me. Um, you know, sometimes it's like I you know there's a time where it's like you people are more in the like production mode and creating things mode, and other times you're like consuming things. You want to read read things, go see movies, go places, mm -hmm. stuff like that. And I, I tend to think of things in, more in that dichotomy of like, am I in a production mode or consumption mode? And like, how, how, how are things changing? And that, that usually guides that. But I don't think, I think kind of, I try to stay in the middle as much as possible. I think if somebody is watching on the YouTube, they would look at you and be like, oh, that's definitely an artist. Like you got colorful stripy shirt, got colorful glasses, got a colored hair. But I think if somebody looked at your Twitter, they would think like, oh, this is the biggest math giga brain, like, like theoretical physics type, like brain person. And so like, it's, it's interesting to see that you, I think you are very much on a barbell as in like, you know, math and cryptography to the nth degree, but you know it so well that you've actually been able to make creative stuff out of it. Like, you know, like you're fluent in math to the point that it becomes creative for you. I think there's always like some element of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think one of the things that, um, you know, I prospect got lucky with was I didn't go do a PhD. Mm. Um, I think, you know, after undergrad, I was like, oh, I got into a bunch of PhD programs. I was going to go do my PhD. But then effectively, it sort of became I don't know. I, I just like got a little weirded out by like, hey, you have to like pick a field now and then you have to stick in it for seven years. Mm -hmm. Kind of had this like wanderlust of like, ah, I like some fields. I like, you know, I like some math, many math related fields. Why do I have to pick one and get stuck in it for seven years? And then even after being stuck in it for seven years, there's like no jobs at the end and dot, 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 right? Like there are, there are a lot of problems with academia. So I feel like that just led me to be like, all right, well, I'm going to try to optimize for what city you can have the most fun in. And then that just like led me to not, not real like to kind of like move back and forth between all these different, different worlds. And I think living in New York, especially like post financial crisis, I feel like there was actually quite a bit of like unbridled creativity here. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that was like a, a fluke, a luck and time type of thing. 
I mean, you know, I, I think in general, it's easy to get like stuck in one thing. And I think, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I just personally always had a little bit of an aversion to that. When did you move to New York? 2011. Okay. So like just long enough after the financial crisis that like mm-hmm. things started getting back to normal, I feel like. Mm-hmm. But also around the time that like San Francisco was starting to have this like, you know, kind of grow and have this like economic boom. And from my perspective, attract all the assholes from New York to go ruin the Bay Area. So mm-hmm. I found that also like to be like a great time to be here because a lot of people who are kind of shitty left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that's like a weird, weird reason to be like, I love this city because all these people left. But I feel like there was a while, you know, probably 2000s where people were like, oh, New York, it's like the like finance bro, like stereotype, real estate, Trump, Wall Street, bro, whatever type of thing. Um, and like with the younger versions of those people, a whole generation of them just didn't go to New York and went to San Francisco, which was great. And that that actually, I feel like was good for like music and arts here in a lot of ways. Yeah. How would you characterize the city now? Have you been in New York ever since 2011? Yes. I've been here yeah. for uh, 11 years. Um, I don't think the pandemic is over here. Mm-hmm. So like, I've like definitely traveled a bunch in the last year and have kind of come to the conclusion that, you know, people in New York were very scarred by the original part of the pandemic and haven't quite got like, okay, here's a great example. This week, I believe on Monday, all indoor mask restrictions were removed Mm -hmm. everywhere in New York. And yet you cannot go on the subway and find very many people not wearing masks. In spite of the fact that, like, there's no, you know, like, things have have gone, people are just so wired to that right now. So I would say things have changed a little bit because of that. Mm -hmm. And people are more mobile. So there are a lot more people who are, me, myself included, who are, like, kind of like, hey, I'll move around in winter and, like, go somewhere warmer (laughs) and then come back. So I feel like there's kind of this interesting thing going on where, like, a lot of people are, like, part-time who were full-time new york residents or like part-time new york residents but there's also way more people here right now than i've ever seen interesting so like it feels like post-pandemic there were just like a lot of people who were stuck in the suburbs at home for like months my theory is that they just hit some turning point where like we need to be around fucking people and like lo and behold (laughs) you got this like huge huge increase in the population especially in brooklyn like Mm. manhattan i think is actually lower than its population pre-pandemic but brooklyn and queens are like way higher um and so that that's been like kind of an interesting uh thing i've noticed yeah would you say the brooklyn's kind of turned into a new shelling point for uh, definitely for crypto people i don't know i don't actually honestly i don't know anything about any industry that's not crypto at this point because i'm so into crypto but like everyone seems to be moving to brooklyn I think that's definitely true for people in tech related fields. So like okay. there's a ton of people who have come from SF. I call them the Fang refugees mm. and they've sort of like all moved en masse. And uh you can see this in New York in a funny way in that like kind of the shitty the like not very artistic but like very modern buildings are all all the rents for those skyrocketed but like the rents for like the brownstones like are the same so i think it's true for tech people 
especially tech people who want to get out of California. And then I also think like this whole like Miami, Austin, Denver thing was oversold. And having been to all three of those cities in the last 12 months, let's say, I'm not convinced they've like built up this like whatever tech hub shit that you see in like the New York Times. You know what I'm talking about? And you were just there. Like, I, right. I, I doesn't feel like it's really there. It feels like it's like kind of flimsy at best. Yeah. Denver always has had some sort of presence in Web3, but I don't see it like growing. Miami, I do see growing. And Austin, I see a lot of people moving towards just generally. But again, Brooklyn is definitely up there in places that people are going towards. And it definitely seems to have like a frontier of technology, frontier of just like human exploration and innovation kind of vibe to it. Yeah, kind of in a weird way, because like, you know, if you went to like another country mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, what is like the most innovative part of the US? And like 99% of them would just say like Silicon Valley, SF, something like that, right? Right. right. Does not seem to be true at all right now. Or at least like, I feel like a lot of the really, a lot of really smart people took advantage of being remote and are just like, I'm never going back to that shithole. And uh, that seems to be what has happened. I actually feel like Europe, also London also felt like this super, super alive. I mean, London is post-pandemic. New York is like on the precipice of crossing the Rubicon, but it's not quite there. Mm -hmm. But like, yeah, London also felt like really back alive in a way, like way more than I mm -hmm. remember it. So I think it's cool that the world is like kind of having these new centers. But personally, I'm actually more excited for like Latin America. Mm. I kind of feel like in the same way that Asia like leapfrogged the U.S., by like skipping building landlines and like fiber and stuff like that and like went straight to mobile. Like I kind of feel like Latin America is going to like skip like the Venmo era and go straight to crypto. Like it feels like they're just like way more primed for it right now. I was living and moving between cities in Latin America mm -hmm. and pre-pandemic, no one took credit cards. Like absolutely no one took credit card. If you, if you had a credit card, you you already looked at it a little bit weirdly, and someone would you know it, it was it was already kind of like a weird thing. This time I went to like Mexico City, Bogota, other places south, uh, like in Chile. Everyone takes credit card. Everyone is taking like tap to pay stuff, and I kind of just feel like they there's this weird chance that like the U.S. gets leapfrogged by like Latin America and maybe Africa. Although I, I haven't been there, so I don't know what to say. But. That's definitely aligned with what I'm hearing from, I did a podcast with Santiago Siri, Santi Siri, yeah, talking about the rate of crypto adoption in Argentina. And he says that everyone's got crypto on their phones and they use actually Binance, the Binance exchange. They all have Binance accounts. And so when they are sending stable coins, they go from Binance account to Binance account because they can't pay for the Ethereum fees. So they're all using like the Binance exchange, not BNB, not Binance chain, but like Binance, the centralized exchange. Yeah. And that's how they pay. They pay with stables in just using the Binance exchange. And he said that Vitalik's recognition, like Vitalik as a celebrity status is like bled out from the crypto community. And now like it's just the regular Argentine society that is where Vitalik is a superstar and regular like Argentine societies using crypto. I think Argentina has always been ahead of everyone mm -hmm. because of all of their kind of debt failures historically right but like mexico you know if you asked me in 2019 if like mexico was going to be a big crypto place i would have said not really because like i'd gone there a bunch of times and i don't mean like tulum and like that right. type of i mean like actual like mexico city like mexican people right. who are using 
uh, digital assets because I was like, everyone wants to use cash there. Like, no, everyone's like, we just want cash. We hate credit cards. And, uh, you know, the pandemic, you know, for, for them seems to have really made them suddenly embrace digital finance, like, way more. And I think the interesting thing there is that, like, the apps that people use are way more like one-stop fits all type things like you know their app for like a robin hood like thing does like rob it's like revolut it's, it's like a even more crazy version of revolut where it's like you can trade stocks you can send stables to each other you can buy crypto you can buy insurance like in app it's actually kind of crazy because it's easier than anything you get in the u.s i think that we're seeing this trend across the globe like in china they have the super apps right and FTX is kind of turning into like a financial superstructure. It's a bank. It's a crypto exchange. It's got derivatives. It just got an integration with Stripe for payments. They're doing NFTs. They're doing it all, right? And so I'm seeing kind of like a converge onto like if you don't build an app that does everything, then like you're going to be bought or your services are just going to be integrated. Are you seeing the same trend? For sure. I think in the US, you don't see it because there's tons of like regulation reasons. And like, yeah. for instance, insurance, right? Like, the fact that I can go into an app in Mexico and buy car insurance and it's like five steps and like I'm done. I literally just take pictures of the car mm -hmm. uh, and then you have car insurance. And then here it's like every state has a different law. And like to be an insurer in each state, you have to like have deposit capital with each state's registry. It's just natural that the U.S. is going to be last in the aggregator game because it's just like there's just too much like state by state financial regulation. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think in like places like in Latin America and Africa, this aggregator thing works like insanely well. Like the Binance and FTX examples are like, I, I, their American branches of all these exchanges are kind of not that great, mm -hmm. right? Like volume wise, like right. user wise, but like their international stuff is like insane. And I think, you know, they're all private companies, so we don't know, but I would love to see like the breakdown of like Latin American and African users not in terms of dollar amounts, because like if you try to like say like, hey, like who transfers the most? Obviously, it's going to be like the whales in China and like American mm -hmm. like institutions or whatever. But, you know, like if we actually do some more like transaction count based type of thing, how many users do you have who are regularly using certain things? I wouldn't be surprised to see like somewhere like Mexico went from like 50th to like second uh, since the pandemic, which is like. That's like an interesting trend. And so definitely recommend going and taking a little tour just to like see how like behavior has changed. Uh. Do you think that the leapfrogging of the United States just in general is because many other countries in the world just don't have the same just sheer volume and magnitude of regulations that we have? I mean, I think I think part of it is the regulation, but part of it is also like... um you know, uh, Matt Levine, this Bloomberg columnist, he he always says, like, everything is securities law. Uh, like, because, like, you know, someone can commit a crime or, like, kill someone. But then, like, if you look at st the statistics, half the time it will be like, hey, they didn't pay their taxes. Right? Like, that was, like, how all the mafia Rico stuff happened in the 80s, right? Like, none of them were really arrested for, like, the murder crimes because of, you know. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them were arrested for, like, tax evasion. And so in the U.S. financial law, uh, uh, maybe a less pithy version of this is like in the U.S. financial law is the strongest seeming law here, right? It seems like if you can convert some type of social moray into a 
but like, hey, like there's some financial mismanagement here. You can get your case through quick, more quickly, and like it, it work. The system seems to work only for those cases, mm. and I just don't think that's necessarily true in most places. And so, because of that, we have this somewhat onerous system. And the leapfrogging, I think, will be interesting in that, you know, I remember like in the early two thousands, Japan was still kind of like the viewed as like the most technologically sophisticated country right whereas like right now it's probably like i don't know taiwan singapore right and japan seems a little old like it's like still stuck in like sort of like the sony era and you know i think an interesting thing was like everyone was like oh asia like completely leapfrogged the us they went straight to mobile never did you know everyone had 100 mbit internet in their house but yet if we look at what products ended up being distributed the most, right? It ended up coming from South Korea and the US, right? Apple and Samsung. So the leapfrog might just like be a good way of like, you know, if we if we play the game out two steps, you know, Latin America and Africa leapfrog the US, you see some huge companies get built out of there. And then people in the US start copying that. And then like they are able to effectively lobby congress to basically give some exemptions to things that look like the things they see outside that are working and successful mm. and then the u.s can kind of innovate that way like i could totally see that ending up being a a thing i think the mobile thing was actually is a similar regulatory thing but sort of different in the u.s there's sort of spectra so like you know the radio frequencies the, the frequencies on the electromagnetic spectrum there's certain frequencies the government has dictated that they own and you have to buy licenses to broadcast on those frequencies um, from them. And so there's this thing called the spectrum auction. It's almost like a patent. Like the government gives you like the rights to that, like 102.5 megahertz to 102.7 megahertz. And like radio stations usually lease their frequency from, from someone else. So the spectrum auction actually kind of kept the US back in a lot of mobile stuff. Like that's the reason 5G is taking forever is like people can't actually get that can't like there are a few players who own the spectrum and they're not the technology providers. They're like you know like the Comcast type of companies mm -hmm. that bought up all, bought up all the spectrum a long time ago. And you know I think basically what happened is South Korea leapfrogged the US and now there's like all this pressure and this is why 5G was in the news right before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, where like the U.S. government's like we can't get left behind, we're willing to get do anything, and it like plays catch up. And I kind of feel like that's how it always is. Is like someone figures out how to do something somewhere easier, and it like blows up in a good way, like grows really fast. Mm -hmm. And then the U.S. suddenly is like, ah, capitalism must run faster. And like so, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's actually a good forcing function because it kind of is like a way to be like to give a narrative to regulators to be like yo, this is fucking stupid. Like, you should allow certain types of things to happen. So is the pattern that's unfolding here is like, we're America, we have American exceptionalism, we're in the lead, we have all the money, we have all like the talent, but then we rest on our laurels and like regulation perhaps kind of like disincentivizes innovation. And so because of this like disincentive to get up and do something because of regulation, we let somebody else do it. But then we see that being innovated somewhere else. And then we're like, all right, well, we were resting on our laurels too much. Now we got to get up and go. And so we make an exception in the regulation to capture that new innovation that was made offshore to bring it home to America. 
and then we innovate on that, build that out, and then we can rest on our laurels again. So it feels like we're the hare in a tortoise and a hare race where like we go really fast, we sit down, we take a breather, we rest on our laurels because we're Americans and we're awesome. Uh, and then innovation continues. The march of innovation continues elsewhere because they don't have the same regulations that we have. Uh, and then at some point, something inevitably crops up out of just pure unbridled innovation that's unbridled by regulation elsewhere outside of America. And then we just repeat this process. Is that a fair way to describe this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like an iterated tortoise in the hair. Right. Like the hair is like only realizes it's losing the race mm -hmm. when the tortoise is like five feet from the end and mm -hmm. then suddenly runs and like just tries to like play catch up. Right. Um, but I think that's generally the like the whale versus minnow dynamic that often happens even in other types of games abstractly. Where like the whale with a lot of resources gets lazy or like they have too much concentration of power, wealth, resources. And then that just like has a sclerosing effect. Uh, and then, you know, someone more nimble kind of takes advantage of that. And then like eventually the whale's like, ah, oh, shit, I got to like save myself. And the question is, how many rounds of this can we survive? Mm -hmm. Right? Like the pandemic was like a weird, you know, it was, that was like someone like, that's like playing chess and someone just in the middle of your chess game randomly removes like 50% of the board spaces. Mm. And you're like, all right, go, you have to play now. And anything that doesn't have a piece, you die. <laughs> you know, it's like, so I think there's like kind of a, a question of like, is it sustainable to kind of always have this repeated tortoise in the hair type of thing? Or is it, mm. is it like, is it inevitable? Is there like no other alternative? Yeah, I think the crypto industry is generally a fan of just like we have way too much regulation. Let's reduce regulation by like 90 percent and go from there. Would you be in that camp as well? I don't know about like 90 percent. I think it, it like needs to be metered. I think the the beauty of the U.S. right is like we built this union founded on this notion of like a very clear separation of like local versus national rights mm. and you could have the separation of local versus national in the same way you're supposed to have separation of church and state. Um, I just think like in a world where internet commerce is larger than real life commerce, perhaps, then the state versus national thing doesn't really matter anymore. And so then you kind of end up needing a different legal structure. Otherwise, like you're kind of always run to tension. And like a very stupid example of this but like one that's interesting is that, you know, if you go to, say, Mexico, or Argentina, the delivery apps there can deliver you any type of alcohol, basically any time of day. In the U.S., however, because certain states want to charge a liquor tax on stuff produced in that state, they don't allow delivery outside that state. And like there's this very complicated set of rules of like when you're allowed to deliver alcohol and if you cross the state border you have to pay taxes on both sides and like it just becomes this like kind of a huge mess right and all that you wanted was just like hey guy in florida making some small batch whiskey i'm in new york why the fuck can i just order that online and i'll just like new york and florida just agree to split the tax evenly well, that doesn't happen, right? And so that, then you have these like turf wars between states. Mm -hmm. And then eventually that fragments the apps, right? Like the, now the liquor app has to be kind of separate from like the Uber Eats DoorDash thing. Um, so I think this like the maybe 10,000 foot view of this is actually there's this challenge 
when you have so much commerce done on the internet, there's this challenge of like reconciling that with like these like state and national laws, and let alone international. Like international is even more complicated. Mm-hmm. Let's just start with state and national. Like those things are even hard to reconcile. So I think the question is, do we end up with a different governance structure, which then would, yes, it would change 90% of regulation, but it's unclear if it would remove all of it or if it would just like reshape it or if like there would be some sort of like treaty, mm-hmm. you know, because like in the articles in the constitution, we have this interstate commerce clause, right? And the interstate commerce clause is very interesting because that's the thing that ensures that one state can't ban you from going to another state and selling stuff or, you know, basically doing any type of business. And a very interesting anecdote about this is that in Australia, the Western part of Australia, basically until like last month, from 2020 to last month, completely shut its borders to any other Australian. Like in the US, you can't do that. You can't just like have one state say, fuck you, you can't come in here. Like, right. And and so there's kind of this thing that like at the time that the US was founded, this interstate commerce thing was kind of a, a, a groundbreaking sort of form of, of governance in that it like allowed commerce to be free. And sort of the internet sort of also does that. But somehow like we have to reconcile the fact that with our current legal system. And I, that's going to be the tension, I think, of the next like 20 years in the US. Is the story of that just that, we as humans are coming together as a global society faster than our regulations are. As in like, we're all on the internet, we're all having commerce with each other. The regulations still think that we're in a pre-internet, you know, not less bits, more atoms type of environment. And like, it just hasn't caught up with this like globalized society that we're creating on the internet. Yeah, basically. Which is why I think crypto is, is, you know, one of the more interesting things because it's like, if we zoom out enough, uh, you could argue that the entire goal of crypto is just to make organizations that can do commerce with each other on the internet. Mm -hmm. And those organizations can be as loosely defined as a club, or as strictly defined as a nation state that has like capital flows, like a DeFi protocol is more in that side. And then like, you know, these other types of more loose DAOs are, are a little more like clubs. But the idea that the internet lets you kind of have the same substrate for all different type types of organizations versus like in real life, you can't have that. You have like some no defined locality of like what types of structures you can create um, kind of makes reconciling those two things quite difficult. Now, I don't know if I would say it's going to be like a revolution, like a, a war. But I do think there's going to have to be some sort of generic reform of like how law in the real world interacts with law in the digital world. And like we're still living in the like surf days of Europe, you know, like 1500s, 1400s, something like that. Like we haven't figured out how how to reconcile those. We didn't have the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. We didn't have the, you know, British Empire growth and crash, you know, like there's still a lot of stuff in like the institution building phase that you know we're still waiting for and so the question is like what is the catalyst for that right the pandemic was one catalyst Mm -hmm. for people to realize oh shit you can basically build institutions online whether it was crypto or whether it's not crypto 
because people were forced to run their institutions online. And then they realized, oh, you can do that. Mm -hmm. There was a Planet Money podcast I listened to about the pandemic, and it was about all these regulations that maybe they were just like in the back of people's minds. No one were paying attention to them pre-pandemic, but once the pandemic hit, all these like regulations got in the way of stuff. One of the regulations was um, cross-state nurses, as in nurses couldn't go and do nursing in a different state. And probably kind of some of the similar regulations that you kind of listed off with commerce and alcohol is just like licenses didn't work cross state. You would probably need to get a different license. But then that held so much of just like healthcare back in times where we needed it the most. And so the pandemic kind of just like took the regulatory cage and like rattled it and some stuff fell out. And we were like, all right, like, let's get rid of that regulation that's like holding us back. But I don't think that's nearly enough. Like you just listed off like the French Revolution or the fall of the British Empire, like I think we have so much like instead of technical debt, we have like regulatory debt as in where we have regulations that I think perhaps the paradigm of these regulations probably started post-World War II, like just in the rebuilding of Western liberal democracies post-World War II. And the culture of regulation probably got started right around there. But now we have this brand new regulatory paradigm with the Internet and now also with crypto. And so what you're kind of alluding to is that we need this great reshuffling, reorganization, re-regulation, rewriting of the rules. And this kind of reminds me of what a lot of what Ray Dalio is talking about with like, and also what people are talking about with like the whole fourth turning where we're going from one paradigm to another, where there seems to be like the world seems to be ready for something new and we don't know what. And I think that perhaps regulation or the regulatory debt that we have is part of that story is like we're trying to find new social structures. We're trying to find new systems of engaging with each other, but things are holding us back and it's making us as a global society frustrated. Yeah. And I think the, you know, like one thing to remember is that, you know, in history, the length scale of organization was quite limited by A, geography, B, resources, C, technology, and D, sort of like rate of population growth, which you could argue is metered by resources, but some version of that. And so we have these organizations into like cities, agoras, nation states, and the nation states sort of congealed into like state-ish things. And then we fractured the states. And once the state grew big enough, we had to like break it again. And we, and you know, there's sort of this like aggregation and disaggregation thing that we've had to do as we like built institutions and collectivism in human society Mm. and somehow the internet makes it so that there's not like a clear length scale right there's not a clear size a notion of a distance that is the right sort of organizational length scale but it's very clear that the ones we use in the real world of like state and nation and maybe city are not really good for the they, like, they just don't work, right? Like, it's the wrong metric, the wrong distance function. And I think, like, once people decide whatever that is, that will determine what this new structure looks like. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. But also, I think there's room to say that, like, perhaps we can't find that new, like, frame of reference, that new meter stick between physical nation states and digital societies. Like, some things about the nation state really only operate on the scales of atoms atoms and not bits and like the true aligned governance in the digital age especially in the crypto age i think 
probably is like nonsensical to ask that to come from a nation state because a nation state is really only good at governing over the physical world, not the digital world. And so like when they like the other the regulations that you talked about, about like, hey, like when I'm on the Internet in New York, why can't I buy that whiskey that's in Florida? Well, that's a physical product that's going across physical supply chains. And it has less to do with like and this is why I think like there's inevitably going to be like a coming we're going to come to a head with crypto regulation and nation state regulation just because like so many things are gray areas in crypto that the nation state I don't think will ever really have a clear answer towards. Yeah. And I guess it gets back to this question of like, should a nation state really be able to regulate like these entities? Like what type of aggregation of people is the right one mm. to regulate mm. these things? And, and like, it's not clear it's actually nations or states, right? It could be a larger thing, maybe. Nations want to regulate it, of course. But I don't think it's like very clear, like who's authority, like what level of like this many people agreeing mm -hmm. is like the correct authority. And like, I think that, yeah, to your point that that's where we're going to get in trouble. And I think all of the supply chain shit we saw during the pandemic and like we still are seeing, right? Like the U.S. is still living in this like crazy supply chain world. I don't know if uh, a lot of people have paid attention to this, but like the U.S. is shipping infrastructure like physical infrastructure is really really bad there was a story of this guy you know this like startup founder guy who like i guess works in this logistics infrastructure space and you know there's this law i guess in long beach california that you can't like stack shipping containers more than like three shipping containers up or something and um this led to basically lines of trucks just like acting as storage for shipping containers like on the street in parking lots and basically there were too many containers coming in and like you couldn't find them and it's completely manual there's not like these things were tagged and you could be like oh this is there's a gps location for like where this container that contains x y or z good is completely not robotic not automated no tagging and he just like wrote this like viral tweet and then after that, like, apparently, like, the, I guess the the county official, like, changed the law for this thing. And, like, basically, you know, like, this two months backlog suddenly was able to get cleared pretty quickly. And compare this to places like, um, I, th I think the most, as far as I know, I, I'm not, like, an expert in this. So this is just, mm -hmm. you know, whatever little I've read on this. Rotterdam in the Netherlands has like this like fully robotic automated tagged shipping container thing it's like processes like you know the u.s receives like hundreds of times the number of shipping containers but rotterdam could basically process more than what the u.s does with one-tenth the number of people who are working on it and so there's this interesting thing on the supply chain side too of like hey we've kind of been like completely leapfrogged by a bunch of places. And I think now the last six months, you've seen like a ton of investment and like acknowledgement of this as like one of the bigger problems. But this gets back to this question of like, why did this guy's tweet suddenly get the law changed overnight? Right? Like the fact that it took that is already like a weird, a weird kind of thing that shows you that like the internet has changed our perception of like state like local regulations in a way that means that like the definition of a state as this regulating entity might be sort of boomer mm. in like 10 years 
Well, this state is always like a lagging thing, right? Like legislation is slow. Governance is slow. Passing laws is slow. But I think especially with the technologies that we have these days and also triggered by COVID because COVID just made us feel like much more of a global society. It's like, oh, when all of Italy gets the COVID, it comes for us like two months later. All of a sudden we start to pay attention to what's going on around the world a lot more just because that data means more to us now especially during a pandemic. But then like, we're just getting better at taking a look around the world and saying like, well, what they're doing over there is working out real well and we have some problems back home. And so like, I think maybe perhaps it just like, especially with society just moving so incredibly fast, like technology makes time speed up. Like we innovate faster, we can produce things faster and like our governance systems are going at the same pace that they were, if not slowing down. And so like the juxtaposition or the dichotomy behind things that are working and things that aren't working. I think people have a lot less tolerance for these things nowadays. And things like Twitter allow us to actually like discover the working things versus the broken things. And so like maybe it's just like actually Twitter was really the upgrade here rather than our governance didn't get any better, but our dissemination of information got better. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's certainly a sense in which dissemination of information is important to this. Although there's this other problem of like, Obviously, I guess this is like a topic du jour of like mm-hmm. what is information and misinformation. Mm-hmm. And I, I, can of worms. I don't. I don't even know if we want to approach that. But there's a question to me of like, how is it possible that the people regulating this thing didn't know that there was this problem? Like, right? Like, they needed this like external feedback loop mm-hmm. to pass this information back. Well, they needed the kick in the butt because they were the hair resting on their laurels, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a good way of thinking about it. I just like kind of, there's kind of just something wrong, though, Mm -hmm. if like your legal system needs this other system to like kick it into doing anything, right? Mm -hmm. Like at some point it has to change like very dramatically, right? Mm -hmm. Bankless is proud to be sponsored by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum that lets you trade any token at the current market price. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. The Uniswap Grants Program is accepting applications for grants. Do you have something of value that you think you want to contribute to the Uniswap ecosystem? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at uniswapgrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. The Gemini Exchange has been my exchange of choice ever since I got into crypto. I use Gemini to both buy the dips and also manage my regular automatic monthly purchases of my preferred crypto asset. On Gemini, you'll find over 50 different cryptos, including many of the top DeFi and metaverse tokens like YFI and Axie Infinity. Using Gemini Earn, you can earn yield on your various cryptos, including 8% on the GUSD stablecoin. Using the Gemini credit card, you can earn crypto rewards on every purchase you make, and your crypto rewards immediately lands in your Gemini account the instant you swipe your Gemini credit card. Gemini is available in all 50 states and more than 50 countries worldwide. So if you're looking to upgrade your crypto exchange, sign up at Gemini with Gemini.com slash GoBankless and get $15 of Bitcoin after you trade $100 or more within the first 30 days. That's Gemini.com slash GoBankless.
When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare ticket prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you want to make sure you're getting the best possible price on your trade. And that's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your trade across all the various liquidity sources in Ethereum, and is also operational on Polygon, Avalanche, Binance Smart Chain, and other chains. Trading on Matcha is super easy because it pools the liquidity for me in a single easy to use platform and allows me to make limit on-chain orders so you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through automatically while you're away. So when you're making a trade, head over to matcha.xyz slash bankless and connect your wallet to start getting the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets. Do you think that we're ever going to be able to update our governance structures like talking about like American democracy here in a way that can actually keep up with the rate of innovation in society. Has any government structure in history ever been able to keep up with innovation? <laughs> Maybe let's start with that. Well, it needs to probably the answer is no, but it just basically needs to not fall off the end of the treadmill. Like it doesn't have to keep up with the head of the chain, but it needs to keep up with it before it falls off. Like it just needs to be able to go fast enough. And I think people are saying like, hey, like, it's not fast enough right now. Like, you got to go faster. Yeah, and so the, like, physics analogy I like to make is, like, there's the second law of thermodynamics, which kind of says, like, in sort of these open systems, open physical system, entropy is sort of always increasing. Like, the more there's, like, mm -hmm. this tendency to higher chaos always. And there's just inevitably going to be that when you have sort of, like, innovation in a society or even just unrest in a society. Mm. And... The question for government is not, hey, can we actually live forever? Even though, like, obviously that's, like, when you're writing this, the rules and structuring things, you're supposed to, like, be thinking of it like that. Like that. Mm -hmm. But the question is, how long can we live before the entropy of the universe Eats us. destroys us, right? Right. And, like, the question is, like, there's this trade-off between being really fast and reactive to changes and being very slow and methodical and, like, making few changes, right? And, like, you know, governments are always like moving on that dial to try to like, they're trying to measure the amount of chaos and then like decide based on that what, where they are with that. And I think the problem is that the longer your governance structure exists, just in naturally, just like humans themselves, even macro structures built of humans seem to have this thing of like, they get more conservative as they get older. Mm. And we've yet to see a human structure that is like, a blockchain in that it like consistently replaces its leader without like lots of strife. I guess the US is the best example, but it's not it's not clear that it's going to just like be able to continue that way without sort of Can you unpack what you meant by that? How does a blockchain consistently replace its leader? We're talking about appending blocks of the chain? I just mean like on every block, at least for sort of like leader-based blockchains, right? You're sampling some distribution, whether it's the stake distribution, whether it's like the hash power distribution. And you pick a new person mm -hmm. at random for that block. And and yes, it's it's random con dependent on the resources they're providing, but it's still, you know, you trust the randomness. That's the crypto part of, of this thing. Mm -hmm. And so I guess it's like, you know, do we trust the the randomness or like the thing, the process that's like generating like either the new laws or the new sort of like structure? Or is it actually like eventually just sclero you know tightens up and uh you don't you know we can't it becomes too much of a structure to re kind of fix and one you have to kind of blow up 
And that's sort of where I just feel like the current system of like state and federal laws somehow has to adapt to the fact that like for some matters, you know, for some matters, you might actually only care about federal law. For other matters, you might say like, hey, me and my neighboring states, we all need to have the same law. And for some matters, you might just say, oh, this only applies to this city, right? It can like move between those scales. And DAOs basically do that, right? They have like different scale, different scales of DAOs in terms of like how much power or treasury or whatever they have and coordination between them kind of lets them say, hey, we're, we're like actually just only going to do this for the city. Oh, we're going to do this for this group of things. We're going to do this for this bigger group of things. And I think, like, eventually, re physical nature will have to be able to adapt to the internet by allowing all different scales of organization in that, if that makes sense. And, like, that sounds like a revolution. Like, that doesn't sound like a, hey, we're going to just, like, tweak, like, state laws until we look like that, if that makes sense. Yeah, so just to make sure I'm up to speed with where your head's at, state laws and federal laws have a friction behind them because they're, if you pass a state law... Then there's like regulatory overhead. So maybe it worked for doing the thing that it meant to do, but it also caused a bunch of collateral damage with other and also in the future you don't know about. And so making the laws precise to where it wants to go is difficult in the physical nation state environment. But then you're saying with DAOs, like with Uniswap raises or lowers its fees like 50 bips or whatever, that's a big change because so much of DeFi relates to Uniswap. But it's also contained to Uniswap at the same time. Same thing with like the MakerDAO stability fee. But then you have like much more smaller DAOs, like I don't know, Friends with Benefits, and they change like a bylaws, and it only contains that's only self-contained to Friends with Benefits. You're, are you saying that like DAO governance structures just like are inherently more surgical and therefore much more aligned with what is being governed over? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, like imagine if like you know, let's say we have a liquor law, mm -hmm. but people in aggregate vote on its jurisdiction. Mm. Okay, are we going to make the liquor law only apply to the states of California, Oregon, and Washington? Or are we going to make it sort of apply to the whole country? Are we going to make it apply to like one city? And imagine if there was sort of a market mechanism for determining the scale at which a law gets applied. Mm. DAOs kind of do that to some extent. And that's a very different version of the law we have now, where it's like to create a new law, you have to pick a sort of jurisdiction in which it is enforced, right? Like I pick it for the municipal government, mm -hmm. or I pick it for like the federal government. It doesn't naturally move between those. Like maybe a law needs to be able to scale with its users. Like a law only impacts 10 people at the beginning, mm -hmm. but all of a sudden it impacts 10,000 people. Now its jurisdiction needs to also change. I think DAOs actually allow you to have that like scale up and scale down. And whereas like laws in the world right now do not do that, right? You pick the jurisdiction size, like boundaries first, and then you say, hey, it's going to hold here. Can you illustrate the scaling up and scaling down of a law with a DAO just to make it super concrete? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's suppose that, you know, Uniswap raises their fee uh -huh. and then in response... Curve raises their fee, and there's this natural market mechanism of like people trading between them, which changes the volume and liquidity structure. And then at some point, people say like, "Oh, uh, we want to vote on actually like 
curve always following Uniswap's fiat. Now you've kind of merged the two laws, right? Even though they're technically their own sovereign protocols, they can choose, like the users of one can choose to just follow the other one's law, right? And they vote on it once and it goes into action. That's very not true in normal life, right? Like if Pennsylvania makes a law, it's not like New Jersey is like, yeah, we're going to follow the Pennsylvania law, right? Like, no, instead you have to like go to, you know what I mean? Mm, okay. So it's like a bottom up federal law system where like, if like Curve agrees to follow Uniswap and then, I don't know, SushiSwap agrees to follow Curve, which is then following Uniswap, there are, turns into right. like now this. You're, now you scaled, you scaled it up, right? right. You went from like only. This pseudo-universal like, fee that's determined for all of DeFi and that's like the federal government's law because everyone in the DeFi ecosystem is using the same source for the fee structure, but that source is Uniswap instead of a globally mandated law. Right, exactly. Like there's some sense in which you can have market effects determine how widely applicable the law will become, mm -hmm. right? And like that's very different than state laws, right? State laws don't have this like competition between them in some sense. So like the power here is, of course, smart contracts where like Curve can just like build this into a smart contract yeah. just as like, hey, like call the Uniswap fee number. Tell me what it is. Yeah, exactly. And so this is akin to like California pinging Washington and being like, all right, tell me what the liquor law is there. But they don't have that ability because they're not on smart contracts. And like, yeah, sure, they can find it, but it's not like they can copy it. Right. They can't just like write a piece of law that says, hey, we're going to copy Washington and update it every day. Like it's not going to work. They won't view that as sovereign, right? Mm -hmm. They're like... Our law can't be superseded by theirs. It can only be superseded by federal law, which covers everyone. Mm. But what if California and Washington just want to have a little alliance? They want to have a little federation, mm. right? And so, like, if you scale this out to, like, all the laws, like, imagine the states were some sort of, like, crypto economic network of DAOs and organizations or whatever. Like, is the idea that we can actually outsource the role of the federal government, just like this mesh network of interstate agreements about every different relevant laws. Like, all right, guys, like, what are we going to do for like the driving age? And what are we going to do for the drinking age? And what are we going to do for like, whatever this law is? Uh, and like, it's just like, this. And, and you could imagine there's like federations, mm -hmm. right? Where there's like, the, the Northeast Federation uh, says the max speed limit is 70 miles an hour. But Texas, Illinois, and Washington State decide to make their own federation and say, fuck you, we're going to make the speed limit 100 miles an hour. <laughs> and I feel like this idea of being able to like group together units and break them apart, this bundling and unbundling of laws that like you can agree to or break apart from, that does not happen. Like You can do it in normal society, but it's not built to do it. So the system takes forever if you ever want to do something like mm -hmm. that. And during the pandemic, we saw that, right, where, like, states tried to, like, join together to buy masks because, like, they then had better purchasing power. But then they, like, couldn't agree. And, like, one state would, like, apply instantly because they, like, had enough of a budget, like, allocated. And another state would be like, no, we have to, like, go through our procedure processes. Oh, wait, everyone has to come in person. Oh, shit, we can't do that. We have to, have to rewrite the law to like, you know what I mean? Like to rewrite the law to rewrite the law. And the, the recursion on this type of stuff makes it such that people don't do it. Mm. Whereas like recursion in the smart contracts is easy. Right. Or like gluing together these things is easy. And so like there's a sense in which the laws can now scale to the correct user base. Mm -hmm. And like to me, that's like the cool thing that like the Internet lets you do that like kind of normal law doesn't, right? You have to like kind of choose these boundaries beforehand. One of the big critiques of government, mainly 
uh, from libertarians, but mainly I hear it from the Bitcoiners, is that like the nation states never get smaller. They only get larger. I think a different way to state that is kind of what we're alluded to is that like laws only get added. They only get appended rather than erased. And that adds on like regulatory complexity. And so like if we discover a problem, what we do is like we write a law to fix that. And then we discover new problems, so we write a new law. And it's like this patchwork of like laws, layered on laws, layered on laws. And that adds friction. But what you're saying is that like the routing or navigating of all those different patchwork mesh network of laws becomes trivial if it's a smart contract because you could just have the code do it. Oh, you could also just fork if you mm. say, fuck you, I don't want to be part of this, right? right? Like you can't fork the liquidity and whatever, sure. But my point is if you really, really are like, I hate this thing, mm -hmm. you do have this like exit criteria and so mm -hmm. i'm not saying that the real law will copy this type of behavior right mm -hmm. like it is hard to do in the physical world right just right. by the nature of mm -hmm. but i do think there will be some lessons that have to come go backwards from like we learn from like internet institutions that go back to real life institutions and we don't know what that looks like right now but i think like that's something that you know the next 20 plus years we'll see you know, i think the question is like do we exit serfdom, you know, in our lifetimes or not? Going back to our metaphor of just like the United States resting on its laurels and then innovation happening elsewhere and then copycatting that. Do you see a world where like we actually figure out how to do some sort of real world governance on Ethereum and then like kind of using the structure of like smart contract based laws or just like if this then that statements for laws? We in like 10 years, the United States was like, oh, that's working out really well for them in the, in the internet world. Can we apply this to our world? And like, we actually have like governance innovation at the, at the federal level. I guess effectively this would work if you were like, hey, the Congress is the Oracle mm. that like guarantees the data input from the real world is correct. Well, isn't Congress just an Oracle of the desires of the people? Isn't that what they do? It's just like supposed, supposed, supposed to, be. to be. Yes, supposed design. Yeah, for in philosophy, <laughs> supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> unclear if it's uh, unclear if it's uh, that's that is is realizable. I think like this is why DeFi is to me the place I find the most interesting. In that it's very precise. Like the things DeFi DAOs do are extremely precise things, and. Like I said, in the U.S., financial law dominates overall. Mm -hmm. And so if you can show that this thing can do better than existing financial law, but with way less resources, then you can now start to say, like, you know, hey, maybe you should start thinking about replacing. And I think that's why, to me, DeFi is actually the pill towards this direction, mm -hmm. more so than, like, NFTs right now. Um because it is way closer to this like real world law thing. And like I don't see like liquor laws somehow being done this way. With liquor laws on the blockchain. I mean, I'm sure there's some <laughs> shitty ICO that claimed that, <laughs> you know, at some point. <laughs> but like I do see like financial law going this way. Mm -hmm. Um like I really do see it could very well kind of move in this model. And then financial law for a lot of financial stuff is federal. Mm. Um of course Insurance and stuff is not, but like, broadly speaking, we could argue it's mainly mainly federal. And so, it, it I I just think it will kind of be the first test. Mm -hmm. And we're not DeFi isn't like good enough yet right. to for that to happen. But like, I think it will be the place where we we get to this point of like, oh, this shit's working a lot better and uses less resources to maintain. Right, it. right. 
I want to dive into the whole like financial laws get enforced the most because we brought that up and again, and I want to dive into that because like, I think if you zoom out and view the nation state holistically, that actually makes a ton of sense because like all nation states are like these meta organisms of resource capture and management, right? Like what nation state can capture and utilize its resources better than a nation state. Ray Dalio had this really good line in his book where like social structures, like cities have laws that we all follow and cities have to follow the state laws and the state laws have to follow the federal laws. But then at the nation state level, once you get to the nation state level, like there is no bigger structure than that. And so at the nation state level, it's the law of the jungle because we don't have any sort of meta organization behind all these different nation states. Like we have the UN, but like doesn't, it's more I of mean, an agreement between nation on. states. Come on. The UN Security Council couldn't even like do anything for Ukraine. Like, right. It's kind of a bit of a joke in some ways. Right. At the nation state level, there is no higher order of organization that forces the lower orders to like adhere. And so at the nation state level, it's just the law of the jungle. And that means resource capture and resource management. And so like, that's why taxes are such a big deal. And that's why we're watching like capital controls happen in Russia right now, because capital's leaving the country or attempting to. And that's the number one thing that a nation state is concerned with, which is resources. And so this is in my mind, when you tell me that financial laws are the things that get enforced the most, to me, that's the nation state doing its damnedest to make sure that the resources that are inside of its borders are properly managed and counted for and taxed by the nation state. Is that a fair assessment? I think it's also, to some extent, again, a form of this thing I was just saying of like, they're very precise decisions, relatively speaking, like, you didn't pay your taxes by this amount and this time, right? Whereas like, a murder trial is very different because there's so many ways in which a trial, a murder trial where, say, 90% of people polled say, like, the person did it can still end up having them not be found guilty. Mm -hmm. And so I think, like, there is a sense, though, in which the nation state for enforcing these, like, kind of more complex matters, it can only expend a certain amount of resource. Like, the resources there are, like, the time it takes, time is a resource, mm -hmm. the judges, um, you know, doing the whole jury process, like it is a laborious task and there's only so many you can do, right? Whereas with financial cases, they're so much more precise that there's like, they're almost automatable. And my argument is that in DeFi, you're basically removing all the lawyers and automating as much of that as possible. So you actually might get to the point where it's like more efficient for the nation state to just use something that looks more like DeFi as a way of enforcing things. Um, you know, obviously that's what these CBDC type of things want to do. I, it remains to be seen if anyone smart ever wants to work on them. That to me, that's like the bigger problem. Is like no one, no one super bright really is like, yeah, I want to work on like the you know. US CBDC or like work at Visa and like on mm -hmm. one of these things. Or like it's it's the talent differences like between cryptocurrencies and you know like Visa or like you know these kind like the Chinese um digital dollar digital renminbi is huge, right? Like you you don't see like really smart people going into doing that. And like that should tell you something about like how feasible it is for a government to do it. And so if it turns out that like it just grows so big on its own it might just become easier to just adopt DeFi as the law right. for that right and like i i'm sure small nations will be first to do that 
because they get free currency stability, possibly. Um, and so that's why I'm much more bullish on DeFi being the kind of way of the real world kind of um, real laws kind of being restructured organizationally. Right. Okay. So the argument is that like all these financial laws, when they go to court, are just so incredibly objective because it's just like, all right, what are the numbers involved with what of the parties? And did the numbers get transferred in the most appropriate ways? And so this is all like almost like math based, almost like trust in math, which is like part of like the the crypto ethos. And so what, what you're saying is that like porting over this legal structure onto DeFi allows us to just reason about these things better. And also with the aid of smart contracts to make sure that we never actually have to go to court in the first place. It's just like all automated on DeFi. And so you're saying that the gap between managing interstate commerce laws versus like interstate finance and tax laws is like much smaller if to actually put that on DeFi versus like how do we manage like alcohol like licenses on the blockchain. Exactly. Yeah. And it becomes easier to adopt, right? Like it just becomes easier to be like in the same way I was like, oh, Curve just adopted Uniswap's fee. Mm. A nation state can adopt an AMM's price mm. as an oracle for a off-chain contract, right? It's not, it can go the other way, right? Like we've spent all this time using oracles to like pump in prices. Right. But if it becomes the most liquid venue in the world, then you can also go the other way. And that's the equivalent of a nation state taking the rules of DeFi are now our law, right? Yeah. That's a very simple case, like a, a, maybe not like a crazy case, but it's still it's still like an example. And, and the case for that would be like in some sort of like courtroom, they're like, all right, well, the Uniswap price for this token at this time was this amount. Therefore, you owe this much in taxes or the settlement is like determined like this or something like that. Yeah, I mean, or a more like nationalistic version is suppose that there's some nation mm -hmm. whose currency is majority issued in a stable coin. And they, they instead of making a digital dollar, they just like act like circle or tether mm -hmm. and they just like make an erc20 that is i don't know the marshall islands dollar mm -hmm. i'm making up a currency and they just issue their stable coin on there and then there's a uniswap pool of usdc versus the marshall island dollar and anything that the government needs to ever get the exchange rate for and governments have tons of stuff where they need exchange rates and contracts in law to enforce the law comes from uniswap Right. That's another case where like you're basically adopting the laws of DeFi in some way mm -hmm. there. And like I think I think it, you know, there was a lot of time in crypto, I think in like especially in the bear market, was spent on like I don't know. I remember like Ripple like tried to like get itself adopted as like the currency of some like random country or whatever, right? None of that shit worked, <laughs> regardless of how much money like people were like giving these uh, random countries. A more powerful version is the opposite, right? Of like the thing that already has a ton of liquidity also has the sovereign coin. Mm -hmm. And now they're accepting the laws of DeFi, right? Like, and like that seems kind of not impossible. Do you believe in Coda's law? Like straight up Lex Cryptographia or whatever it's called? Not really, but more because it's so easy to write bugs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you believe in the philosophy as in smart contract laws supersede nation state laws? Mm, you still have to care about the users, right? Like a lot of these smart contracts only work under some conditions of like there are certain types of users who are providing liquidity, trading, doing whatever, right? At least for DeFi, again. And it depends on the users plus the contracts. Mm. And I think it is lock 
code is all conditional on some assumptions being met. And then without those assumptions being met, you can't assume, you can't say that it's a causal statement. What's an assumption that needs to be met? I'll give you a simple example. Uniswap to be a good Oracle needs a ton of liquidity mm. and the cost of manipulating the price is sort of like above a threshold proportional to like sort of a function of the liquidity in there. Okay. And you know, if I'm going to use it, you know, if the code is like law in that, like some governments like using that Uniswap pool to like figure out how much to pay in, to some other country, like there should be some condition under yeah, which right. that's true. Code is law when we're ready for it as a society, basically. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Exactly. Um, Tarun, when you wake up in the morning, what does what your brain go towards? What do you focus on naturally? What's downhill for you? Uh, where is caffeine? <laughs> <laughs> like that's i mean it, you want the honest answer yeah, that's sure. like the first first thing is like okay where, when you're caffeinated what do you start to think about i don't know i feel like most of it is just like reading like the news and seeing what happened overnight i mean the thing about crypto right is like there's so many times i've woken up and there's just been like some crazy ass surprise and or like some crazy thing happened overnight in asia mm -hmm. uh I don't know. Yeah, the world's gone crazy. I'm actually a, a late night type of person. So like actually in the morning, I'm kind of bleary and like mm -hmm. uh, no good ideas. No good ideas come in the morning. I just take a long time of like reading things before I can finally start like thinking about stuff. And then usually it's trying to understand what things in crypto are actually working by usage, not by hype or things like that. And then trying to see if there is... You know, my research process for coming up like papers to write is like really trying to understand if there's something that's working in spite of the fact that the developers had no clue why it should work. They just like wrote the thing, kind of hoped it worked and then they, they duct tape and bailing wire, put it together. And it's like 90% of the time this thing should fail. But for some reason, it's like able to survive and not get exploited and not get people or not like, you know. I spent a lot of time thinking about that and like trying to analyze the space of these things, because I think that's how you find what the new primitives are, uh, at least in DeFi. So much of like, and we, we saw this with the internet and it's also true with DeFi is like so much of it is emergent. Like when we started with the internet, we just were making newspaper websites instead of what we know of today as website websites. Right. What's that? <laughs> Maybe that's dating me. Uh, Geocities used to be this, like, it was the first website that was like, build your own website for free mm. and like it got bought by yahoo um but like it was like squarespace but really really like shitty like you know it was most famous for inventing the following feature which was the page counter mm. which at the bottom of the page would like show you the number of time visitors this page has. okay so yeah so like so a lot of the early internet stuff that actually never ended up like manifesting into what the, the internet is we know of today and i think now that we have that primitive we kind of can apply it to DeFi, right like uh, or at least with ethereum too like when in 2015 2016 ethereum we had peepeth which was like twitter on ethereum as in like you would write tweets and they would be in transactions on the l1 and this was back when gas was like basically zero cents but now it's completely ridiculous. Now we understand that like there's going to be some sort of emergence with what we build in DeFi. We know that like the things that DeFi will look like in 20 years are probably going to be completely different from what we're building out today. And what we're building out today are probably skeuomorphic and backwards and reductive. So like, is that 
when you think about DeFi, like, are you always on the like lookout for it's like, oh, well, like, is this really going to be what it looks like in 15 years? Or how do you how do you navigate a world that we know we don't know what it will be like in the future? With DeFi, it's like, I feel like the, the key is there's, you know, I prefer saying this and I say it maybe too much, but DeFi has nothing to do with actually changing much in finance, it has everything to do with changing things in law mm. and like removing law more than finance so if you see something work there has to be some analog that's existed in finance somewhere it might be an arcane esoteric thing that like doesn't exist anymore or like blew up in some weird way but there probably is an analog for like nft stuff that's above my pay grade like i have no clue how to think that way and like i know there are these people who are geniuses like andy who are just like always on for that stuff but like, I just, I can't see that. Whereas here it's more about like trying to draw analogies and also to understand kind of like the users really well. And like, mm -hmm. yeah, for finance, it's just a little bit easier. <laughs> it's like, I just don't think we're going to like invent something that's completely new. It's going to be more like something that was very hard and could have existed or did exist somehow was able to be made really easily mm. with smart contracts. Like before it was like too complicated too expensive and the cost of it somehow went down 10,000x and that made it an attractive product and that's sort of how I, I feel with like a lot of financial products yeah I think one of the things I've learned about you the most is almost exactly what you just said where like this isn't finance this is law that we're working on like smart contracts is an automation of law not an automation of finance but finance itself is inherently law-based right you can't have finance without contracts because like, that's all the finance is, is money and contracts, basically. And that's how you create finance. And I think a lot of money is a contract. Look at the back of the bill. It has all the philosophy written on. <laughs> that's a really good point. Yeah, I never even even thought about that. But I think that's something that like a, a lot of listeners probably people that think about DeFi, think of it as finance and don't really consider the law aspect of it. Yeah. And I think like when you make law cheaper, you change which products are used. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you change which products which are product you're product. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Tarun, when you wake up in the morning, what makes you optimistic? Other than your cup of coffee. <laughs> That's coming. Um, you know, obviously humans seem to be unable to not cause strife for themselves. But I just think there's just so many kind of like pretty things in the world that come from very different aesthetic standards. Like, you know, certain types of math are very pretty certain types of, you know, people's like devotion to something is very pretty, like, you know, like people like, I don't really find his art very interesting. I don't like it. But the fact that the dude did that for like so many days in a row and didn't get bored of doing it. You got to respect that. It's like there's some joy, beauty to that. So I think it's more about finding like, taking all of these kind of things that you see in the world, especially on the internet, in internet culture, and trying to like be able to find some like little nugget of like, hey, you know, like I probably hate that thing, but it's actually kind of there's some like, you know, there's always something, a kernel of niceness in a lot of things. And, you know, to do that, you have to keep yourself only locked into certain parts of the Internet and away from others. But uh, to do what? Oh, to always be able to find some like nice, like nugget of like fun, hmm. like, hey, this is cool. I appreciate it type of thing. And like finding those things every day. Like, that's kind of my, what uh, makes me optimistic. It's the fact that there are those. Why do you have to lock yourself 
into the internet to find that? Oh, I just try to say, like, I don't read 4chan. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, there's certain parts of the internet that there's some things where I, I'm like, I don't think I'm going to find anything positive here. Mm. Okay. Right. <laughs> what's an example of a piece of math that's pretty? So what's the last pretty piece of math that you saw? So I think, like, my favorite proof of all time is, like, the one thing I think that's very interesting in math is, like, the more powerful, like, a theorem or statement, the more, A, it gets used, but, B, the more people try to find different ways to prove the same result. Mm. And so the more fundamental and important an object is, the more you find, like, 500 proofs of it. And within those 500, there's many different forms of style and aesthetics. Some are, you know, they're pretty because they use really fancy machinery and the proof is really small. Some of them are pretty because it's like very first principles. You don't need to know that much background. And some of them, they're pretty because they like are a tour de force. They like are able to like glue together things that you wouldn't have thought would like work together. But I think my favorite proof is the the fundamental theorem of algebra, something you kind of like learn in, in high school, which is like any polynomial has n roots in the complex numbers. Like it has it has all its roots. And like when you learn it the first time, you always learn this like really ugly, super ugly proof. But there's this one proof using Liouville's theorem, which is something in complex analysis that is just very, very clean. And I, I find like the fact it's like a proof I have committed to memory. And I think like it's kind of like finding a poem you really like, you know, there might be 500 poems that are going to the same sentiment. But sometimes you find one where you're like, this is the one that like, you know, you just insta commit to memory. And so that's probably it. The way that I relate to that is um, when I'm doing my writing and I'm writing out a paragraphs to make a point and going through the revision process, I find a way to take like this three paragraph section to, that's making I, what I think is like a really awesome, very strong point. But it took me three paragraphs to make it. And then in my editing process, I'm able to like actually like take the third paragraph cut some stuff out and then like integrate that into the first two paragraphs. And if I'm really on my game, then I can actually find a way to cut that paragraph down into two paragraphs. And like the best theorem, if you will, is like, oh, I actually collapsed a whole entire section into these two sentences. And these two sentences actually land so much harder with the listener, with the reader yes. than this whole entire paragraph. Okay. And Ryan always says, like when we were trying to onboard like writers into Bankless is that you're supposed to write like you tweet. Like if you're actually constrained for characters, how do you get your point across? And like, it's the art of like writing a whole entire, like 10,000 word article, but that you get the point across inside of 500 words. And it kind of sounds like the same thing. Right. Yeah, it's the same thing. But somehow you need to have struggled through the long one mm -hmm. to figure out the short one. And like that process is also very can sometimes be pretty to see like how that mm -hmm. how the simplification happens are you familiar with the concept a mathematical concept i'm sure you are actually with basins you mean like basins of attraction yeah. in a dynamical system mm -hmm. yeah yeah so is it fair to try and extrapolate this out as in like the bottom of a basin is like the most simple and most reductive <laughs> proof or in my world the most simple like the how do you collapse 10,000 words into a single meme. Like, do you think the base of the attraction basin is like the bottom of it is like the most distilled thing of what we're trying to talk about? Yeah, I like the analogy. I, I will say it, it's not true for all basins because mm. oftentimes they don't have unique 
points, like unique minima, they can have like many bottoms. Mm. But like the sentiment's correct, uh, for sure. Assuming you have a, a way of describing like a dynamical system that's like your thought process, right? But then mm -hmm. again, neuroscience is very far from being that precise. <laughs> well, we can also extrapolate this to DeFi, right? Where like maybe there's a desire to swap tokens on DeFi. So what do we do? The first thing we do is we build Ether Delta. And that was a very, very messy proof of trying to swap tokens. And then, you know, later we find Uniswap. We find X times Y equals K. And that seems to be like the most reductively simple way of swapping tokens. And I feel like you could probably extrapolate this to like almost all domains of knowledge where like you can just find the most simple and most easy way to do something. But then when you extrapolate that, like... Do you get into the conversation of singularity? Like, what is the most bottom-most basin of the universe? And if we all end up there, like, what happens? Did I just get way too far out there? I don't know. I feel like that's <laughs> I just, think like, the answer's so, yes, then. <laughs> that's, that's just, like, yeah. I guess so. I think the interesting thing is I feel like the concept of the singularity seems to have, like, lost popularity. Mm. Like, I feel like 10 years ago it was, like, Kurzweil was like, you know, really like hot character. And now instead we have his son making very cringe fake DAOs. Wait, is that real? Bessemer DAO. Like like this venture fund is like claiming they're making a DAO uh -huh. and they're like gonna invest out of it. But I don't think they understand what the D stands for. Right. <laughs> and his son is running it. So, you know. I do think we actually kind of accidentally went down like the wrong path with naming these things. Like, none of these things are DAOs. Yeah. I mean, pets.com was an era, right? Like, no one says, like, you know, bankless.com. Right. Yeah. So, we'll, you know, it, you have to go through this. Again, this is like the, you know, we're going through this dynamical process, mm -hmm. you know. All right, Tarun. Do you have any, like, rule of thumb that you follow or bit of advice that has been useful for you? Good question. Um, Probably, like... You know, a thing I started doing in college and then like kind of have still done is I have this rule of like never eat a meal alone. And so like that leads you to like actually try to find to meet new crazy people. Obviously, the pandemic kind of ruined that rule, but like let's ignore that fact. But I think like being able to like have some like very simple structured goal like that, which forces you to like go, you know, change your social behaviors somehow i feel like is a very good good thing yeah. so if it's dinner time and you don't have somebody to eat a meal with what do you go do go meet someone random go eat at a bar eat at a bar just no airpods allowed yeah, yeah yeah sit at a bar yeah exactly exactly you're talking to a guy that like eats most of his meals at a bar with the airpods in <laughs> you know I, in new york though i feel like it's very it's very different like there's like tons mm -hmm. of people who just like go and hang out on their own mm -hmm. and it's not yeah so all right bankless nation action items go to a random bar and get a meal and talk to a stranger